Welcome to the American Democracy Lab podcast presented by the Gephardt Institute at Washington University. Each episode, we bring on experts from different fields to share their takes on an aspect of modern American democracy. I'm your host, Alan Lambert, Associate Professor of Psychology here at WashU. Today is the second of a two-part discussion we're having about the insurrection that happened at our nation's capital on January 6, 2021. Here, as before, we have the great fortune of having two former congressmen, Richard Gephardt, Democrat from Missouri, and Zach Womp, Republican from Tennessee. They served in the U.S. House of Representatives for 28 and 16 years, respectively. So it's now been a year since the insurrection in our nation's capital in January of 2021. So obviously there were some horrific things that happened that day. That said, one might also imagine that in the long term, some good might come out of this, as strange as that might sound. In terms of its broader impact on American democracy, how would you describe the events of that day? Well, I think it's a mixed bag. Um, a, a lot of people still believe that the election was invalid and was stolen. Uh, so they're still amped up about that and agitated about it. But I think, on the other hand, the, the, the level of violence and difficulty that went on on January 6th has educated a lot of other people that maybe this democracy is fragile and that it's, we, we all got to do something or a lot of people have to do something to make sure it, it's sustained and it can go on, that, that we're not, you know, we can't just whistle past the grave here and say, oh, everything's okay now. We got through that and we don't have to worry about this anymore. So I see it as a, <laughs> as a crazy way to put it, but a mixed blessing. Uh, I'm sorry there are still people that feel the election was invalid and stolen. I hope that over time they can become convinced that it wasn't because I don't believe it was. And there's a lot of other things we have to do, which Zach and I and others work on every day to try to strengthen our democracy. Yeah, we are in a state of crisis. I, I, I agree with Zach. I think we're in a bad place. And to think that we aren't is really wishful thinking. And there's a big agenda that we have to deal with on a whole lot of levels in order to make sure this democracy survives and goes forward and becomes even better. Yeah, in a way, I would say that it's like a volcano. You know, there, this has been brewing for a while, and January the 6th is where it erupted, and, but it's still there. And so we, we – and, and January 6th dramatically destroyed confidence that we must have in our institutions. And it's not just Congress and the executive branch. Um, we're, we have a, a crisis in confidence of a lot of institutions in this country. I read – surveys even about the Supreme Court. Uh, the United States military is still relatively strong, but law enforcement is down. A lot of our institutions need a, a shot uh, in the arm and, and some work. So again, this is an experiment uh, in, in can people govern themselves. And so if you don't go back and tune it up, it can come unraveled. And that's why it's very important. There's these seminal moments in the history of this republic where we've made mistakes but we corrected course. You know, obviously the worst mistake probably in history uh, led to the Civil War, and we corrected course. I mean, people can talk about, you know, equality today, but we're light years better than we were, you know, years ago. And, and it's because we recognized we were stupid. We made bad human errors, and we needed to fix it. Uh, you know, um, 
the Trail of Tears was a result of bad U.S. policy. And so what do you do about it? it it's like life. It's You're, you're going to make mistakes, but what do you do about it? Well, Jan- January the 6th was an eruption from a lot of mistakes that were made in a system that requires updating. And a, we, we have to renew our commitment like a marriage to respect each other and to honor each other and to accept the rule of law and the outcome of elections, period, period. No uh, exceptions once the process works itself out. One of the things that Leader Gephardt and I have talked about that binds us together, I don't agree with him on hardly anything, but I always respected him. And I respected the fact that at the end of the day, after we voted, whoever won would win, (laughs) would actually get to enact their policies because we operate under a majority rule. And if that no longer happens, we're not exceptional. We will devolve into authoritarian leadership and we'll end up like a third world country over time because that is the special sauce of the United States of America. And freedom is, has to be attached to the responsibility for each other and the system. And we have to honor it. Our constitutional system is brilliant. But if people have the freedom to just do whatever they want to do and not accept any responsibility to vote, to honor, to run for office, to respect leadership, to do these things, it doesn't work. And that's been tested. So this is yet another test. Will we rise to this occasion? I certainly hope so. Uh, We're working to uh, remedy these issues, and we'll talk about some remedies because there are solutions to make sure – these things don't happen again, but, um, you know, and, 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 hey, we've had leaders that are wonderful and leaders that are not wonderful. Uh, so it, it, it can't be about a person. It has to be about a set of ideals that we adhere to and that we uphold together as more important than a person. And, and I tell people in my party, you know, your party shouldn't be about a person. It should be about a set of principles and ideals that you all agree to. And as Ronald Reagan said, if you agree on 80% of it, then you're friends. You don't have to agree on 100% of it. Uh, but, it, you know, today is, it's not our best moment. I've been on TV around the world in the last two years saying this is not our best look. we got to do better. And so that's for sure if we're going to sustain this experiment uh, as, as a democratic republic. So what do you see as some reforms or initiatives that might be helpful in improving America's faith in the election system? So, Zach, why don't you start? The one that has the best chance of actually being embraced in a bipartisan way is the electoral count. And it's an, it's an update of a law from 1787. You ask if anything like this had happened before. Well, we did have a big election conflict after the Civil War in the Hayes and Tilden race where states would actually submit two different set of electors. You know, so this time we had all 50 states submit their electoral, electoral college results, and there was no conflict. There were no state legislatures that actually voted to override the electoral college count from their states. There were no conflicts in December the 13th this year. So the role of the Congress on January 6th under the Constitution, under Article One, was simply to count the votes, open the boxes, count the votes, carry them from one body to the other, and that's it. Uh, but that's not what people were led to believe because there was ambiguity in the law. The law was written for 19th century application. Um, you know, they, they had a, a word, term in there called regularly given. And what regularly given meant back then was 
unless somebody had been bribed or held at gunpoint when they submitted their electoral college results, they were certified. And so, you know, some members of Congress used regularly given this year as an excuse to bring this back up and try to overturn the election. And again, as Dan Crenshaw says in the Swamp Story podcast, that was just simply not true. It was just the people were lied to about what the role of Congress is. So we got to clean that up. The Electoral Count Act is 130 years old. It needs to be modernized. It needs to be updated. It needs to be 21st century language. There needs to be some de minimis amount of opposition in the House and the Senate to the electoral results to even have a vote or to have a, um, uh, an objection that, that requires a, a massive debate. The Electoral College, if they certify the results under the Constitution and there's no objection, that's actually the end of the process. Yet a lot of members of Congress think, oh, we can overturn this, and it doesn't matter who wins. This shoe could be on the other foot in 2024. You know, Biden could barely lose to Ron DeSantis, for instance, and there could be irregularities that certain members of Congress didn't like, and two weeks after the Electoral College results are finalized without any any confusion, they could still go to the House floor and try to overturn the election. That is not constitutional. That's not the way it works. Never intended. So we need to clean it up. I would say that a de minimis amount, like you'd have to have uh, two dozen members of Congress object for some real reason. And and these are the modernizations of the Electoral Count Act that need to be made. That's just one of many things that need to be improved in order for us to make sure this never happens again. Uh, but, you know, Dick has been really outspoken on this misinformation thing. Uh, because of the internet, because of the iPhone, because of what's happened with communication technologies, empowering people to basically say whatever they want to with sometimes millions of followers, we have a misinformation problem. And that's actually probably the greatest threat that we face uh, in the country today to the, to the republic is misinformation and disinformation. And we all know that uh, you know bad people around the world use misinformation campaigns for their purposes we got to make sure that doesn't win the day in the future here because there were millions of Americans that were misled grossly in 2020 about what the role of the Congress is with respect to uh, their role on January the 6th. That's why we've got to pass a new Electoral Count Act. And right now, there is some bipartisan support for that update brewing. And I think after the Congress finishes this session and goes back in after the first year, there's a pretty good chance that in a bipartisan way, probably initiated in the Senate, uh, we might get uh, some reforms put forth to the Electoral Count Act. Yes, Zach has done a marvelous job in working on this, and he's making real strides within the Republican Party. And we've got to pull together a compromise or hope a compromise can be pulled together that can get this done. So he's done yeoman work, and he deserves tremendous credit for it. Let me talk for a minute about the information problem, which I think is really, really important in this whole picture. Um, and I'll start this with an anecdote. So I, I'm sure Zach did this as I did it when I was in Congress. I had town hall meetings all the time. I'd get two, 300 people in a church basement or a school basement and any, anybody can get up and say whatever they wanted. And the vast majority of the people were just wonderful people. A lot of them disagreed with me. A lot of them didn't like me, but they came to express their opinion. And I 
thank them for that. And everybody listened politely. And it was, it was a really good, it was democracy at the local level in action. Uh, but there was always two or three people that were either totally crazy or just mean kind of angry people that wanted to get up and just spew stuff on everybody and everything. And that was okay. Uh, everybody would listen. Some people would roll their eyes. I'll just tell you one story. I had one woman who came and she got up and she said, Congressman, I want you and everybody here to know that the Martians have landed and they're outside my house every night and they're looking in. And I went to Home Depot today and I bought all the tinfoil I could buy and I covered the inside of all my windows and doors. And all of you, including you, Congressman, need to do that. I thanked her for, you know, coming to express that. And, and uh, I said, everybody's not going to agree with that, but we're, I'm glad you came. In that time and day, nobody outside that room heard what she said. She could go on talk radio, but nobody really listened to talk radio. Mm-hmm. Now, she can put that post on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, a thousand times a day. And the business plan of the Facebooks of the world is to distribute that information to people that they know because they know everything about you, right? They know how you behave. They can then send that information to, to people that will be angered and anxious about getting that information. Why do they do that? To keep their attention on the platform so they can sell more ads because they have a higher rating and make more money. And what I'd say is the business plan of the platforms may not be consistent with democracy and having a viable democracy. Now, doing something about it is really hard because we do want freedom of speech. We have to have freedom of speech. And we can't, I don't want the government to manipulate the information. That's what they do in China and Russia. We don't want that. So how do you work with the platforms or either work with them or get them to change this distribution system they have of information so that they're getting, you know, half the people in the country hate the other half and vice versa. You can't have a democracy with half the people hating the other half, hating, hating, and the other half feeling the same way about them. So this is a corrosive problem at the heart of what I think is our problem. Let me just say one last thing. I get complaints about Congress all the time. People say, what's wrong with those people? And I say, yeah, it's pretty dysfunctional. But I said, let me tell you something. Congress is a reflection of the people. It has to be. That's how you get elected. But having said that, and I think Zach will second this, I've met a lot of young members in both parties, and the vast majority of them are great people. They're there to do the people's business. They are public servants. But the media pays all the attention to people on the far left and the far right that are acting crazy, and they're not giving the public a valid feeling about who is in Congress and what Congress is about. So that's, that's my thought. Well said, and 100% agree with you. So let's take a longer view of the future. 
How can we make meaningful changes? And what's it really going to take to turn things around? Well, I, I, I go back on this question of, of Congress, you know, not working properly. And uh, the word respect is really important in this. And Zach talked about it a minute ago. And you got it. There's no way that any human entity can function well at all if the people don't respect one another. You have to start with respect. And in our time in Congress, most of us, if not all of us, really respected each other. You know, our friend Bob Dole passed away the other day. He's, He's one of the most incredible public servants in the history of the country. Uh, I talked to him most every day. He was leader of the Republicans. I was leader of the Democrats in the House. He was in the Senate. I I talked to him repeatedly. I would go to his office. We so deeply respected and really loved one another that we were able to work through our serious differences. I didn't agree with him on most things. He didn't agree with me. That's fine. That's what Congress is for. That's what democracy is about. It is to try to get to a compromise that will bring everybody along in a a forward-looking direction. And one of the things I've always believed, I saw a lot of tough votes in Congress where there was deep, violent disagreement on issues. But at the end of it, when we finally got it resolved with a compromise, and I'll say it again, compromise is the oxygen of democracy. It's always hard. It's always complex. And it almost doesn't ever come together. You always feel like when you're in the middle of a big compromise, it's falling apart 10 times before you get it done. But what we get from that, and I talk to people about this, this to me is the majesty of democracy. So what do we get from that? Well, I saw a lot of really big issues get decided. And and at the end of it, everybody, not only in Congress, but their supporters out in the country who cared about the issue were really unhappy. But they put up with it. They, They were willing to grudgingly accept the compromise because they thought the process was fair. And so they didn't, they weren't motivated to pick up a rifle or leave the country, which is what we would have every day if one person was making these decisions in a dictatorship. So it's a magical, majestic system. And it's always hard and it's always, but at the heart of it, you've got to start with respect. And I respected everybody in the Republican Party and Zach Womp would be at the top of my list. And we worked together and, and, and I worked together with Bob Dole and Newt Gingrich and Bob Michael and all the other folks that, that we had in that time. So that's the way democracy operates. And I just hope we can tell people more about this because the citizens have to understand the importance of having a democracy. I think Winston Churchill said, and I paraphrase, that uh, our democratic republic is the worst form of government imaginable except for every other. 
and and that always gave me hope that even though it was flawed in some ways and that it's very difficult and challenging in some ways, it still beats the heck out of anything else in the whole world. So it's worth fighting for, number one. And number two, we do have to find ways to get back to trust and confidence and transparency and honor where public service is a noble calling once again at the federal level. I frankly still see a great divide at the state and local level where public service is much more noble today than it is at the federal level where it has devolved into a kind of a nasty food fight. And that and that's one problem. The influence of money and politics and power uh, has led to a kind of institutional corruption. You know, the old adage of power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely is kind of coming home to roost here in the 21st century. But the question that you ask about what's it going to take to turn it around is the number one question asked of me since I left Congress 11 years ago. People ask me that all the time. They know I'm involved in these reform efforts trying to restore confidence in the Congress. That's really at the heart of what issue one is about is we're trying to restore confidence in the federal government through changes that would allow the people to have faith again in the United States government because they've lost faith. And uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. But one thing I think we need to do, and, and this is a, is a big picture, but Leader Gephardt talked about he met young Republicans and Democrats in Congress that were good and decent people uh, and, and that only the wild people seem to get the most attention. I really believe that the next generation, people that are under 50 in this country from both parties, have a better chance of working things out and working together than my generation, and I'm 64, because my generation in the last 20 years has kind of been stuck in this food fight of blame and, and not accepting responsibility. I think some of it began with the, the blame around the intelligence that led us into Iraq. I think that was kind of a triggering point between uh, the two parties on blaming each other because not, nobody won't accept responsibility, and the blame game became institutionalized. Instead of accepting responsibility, putting the country above your party, the parties just decided if we don't succeed, we'll blame the other team, and planning became, became a two-year election cycle. All planning is around the next election cycle instead of what about 10 years from now in this country, and don't we all collectively own a piece of this experiment, this magical place called America. And so I do think the next generation's got a better chance. So one of the things I think we need to do uh, is to elect and support young Americans because they're the ones that have to live with this the longest. And the problems that we have need to be their problems. They need to embrace it. And whether you're a 27-year-old progressive or a 36-year-old conservative, um, you need to get, be given power. You need to be empowered to take control of your own future and your own country, and we need to elect more young Americans from both parties. I really believe that they have a better chance. They're a little more pragmatic than the tribalism of my generation. Uh, we're the grandchildren of uh, the baby boomers are kind of the grandchildren of the greatest generation. And, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of my peers haven't sacrificed much. I haven't had to sacrifice much. I've, I've lived uh, off of the, the fruits of their labor and their sacrifice. And, but I recognize that, and I tried to serve and help. But young Americans need to be empowered to 
rise up and work together to solve these problems. We've done this before. Um, I've talked to foreign leaders. My friend Kevin Rudd in Australia, he said, yes, I have faith that America's going to come back because you always have. They've seen us five or six times be in worse position than we are now, and we've come back. The seminal question of our time is, are we going to do it again? Or are we going to let it slip through our fingers? You know, Because the old this, this is a, a special experiment, but it requires us to be engaged. Citizens need to learn and know the facts. What is the truth? We have to stand on the truth. We have to. We can't deny the truth, and we can't let um, disinformation rule the day. So, a lot of things need to change. But I do think generationally, we need young Americans. Um, I actually have met a lot of younger conservatives and younger progressives and Democrats in the Congress that have a a pretty good chance of working these things out. I mean, honestly, if you sat down um, Abigail Spanberger and um, Dan Crenshaw <clears throat> as leaders between Democrats and Republicans right now and said, y'all build coalitions around everything you can agree on, that would be the greatest step in the right direction that we can make right now because those are two very responsible members of Congress, Democrat and Republican, whose heads are squarely on their shoulders. They've not drank the Kool-Aid of either extreme in either party. They're just tactical lawmakers that are very pragmatic, and they understand the Constitution and the rule of law, and they would work together to fix these problems. Why don't we empower that? That would help and, and take us a long way in a short period of time, and, and we, need, we need that in this decade. That's really interesting. So as a related follow-up question for both of you, in your political careers, I'm sure you've met a lot of people who are passionately devoted to their own political views, but they're also open to alternative viewpoints. So today's conversation is one good example of that, as we have two people who have long been good friends who just happen to belong to different parties. However, I'm going to imagine there are other politicians who aren't so open-minded. They have their own worldview, and they're really not interested in hearing about other perspectives. So hypothetically, if you were meeting a younger member of Congress who seemed to be strongly liberal or strongly conservative, and you wanted to encourage them to be more open or at least a better listener to the other side, what sort of advice or counsel would you offer them to be more empathic and to be a better listener to other points of view? So when I became leader of the Democrats in 1989, um, we had four people in the leadership. And as soon as I could, I expanded it to 60-60. And I put in a room every night at 5 o'clock for two hours that very diverse group. It went from the far left to to really people that were thought more like Republicans completely. And uh, the only requirement I had was that they would be willing to listen to one another and that we could try to find some consensus on the issues we had to deal with. And it never failed. It never failed. And one of the things I always said to people was, none of us knows everything. I wish I did. I don't. I don't know what you know. And you don't know what I know. And I don't know what she knows. And around the room, you've got to listen. And then maybe your thinking will change. A number of times I'd have people come up to me and say, when we started to talk about immigration or whatever it was, I just knew we had to do this. But I listened to him and her and him. And they come from different parts of the country. And they have different background. They have different experience. I've changed my mind. 
I could, I could put up with that compromise. And, and so what I would say to a young member is keep your ears open. You don't know everything. Others can help bring about the agreements that you need to move the country forward. And that's what public servants are there to do. So that would be my hope. I would also encourage, as Zach just said, groups like the Problem Solvers, the Abigail Spanbergers and the Dan Kramer, you know, to, to take on more positions of leadership and move the Congress together into that kind of consensual collaborative relationship that you have to have. And, and actually one thing issue one did a couple of years ago uh, was actually dispatched my son Weston to go and meet with uh, about 20 Republican future congressmen when they were candidates before they actually got elected because they were in solid Republican seats and they were about to win. One of them was Dan Crenshaw to meet with them before they got elected to say, basically when you get there, don't let the leadership of your party or the other party kind of brainwash you into hating the other side uh, because the truth is neither party has an integrity on uh, – neither party has an exclusive on integrity. Neither party has an exclusive on ideas, to be honest with you. Neither party is always right or always wrong. I grew up a Democrat. I voted for Jimmy Carter. Ronald Reagan made a Republican out of me, and I've been a Republican ever since. Uh, but I, I went to Congress respecting the fact that Democrats uh, can be good people and that I would find really good friends in the Democratic Party but not agree with them because the process was they got to vote on behalf of their district and I got to vote on behalf of my district, and whoever got the most votes would get the policy. So we, we need to ingrain in the next generation of leaders this notion that neither party has an exclusive on integrity. And I got to tell you, both parties have let us down at different times on campaign finance violations, abuse of power, um, you know, and sometimes the party leadership doesn't really represent the values of their own party. And, and I would say, even though Leader Gephardt was the leader, one of our problems in Congress is power has been centralized a little bit too much in the leadership and not enough in the membership. Every member of Congress ought to have a little more influence in lawmaking and legislation, and they ought to have a little bit more influence in messaging, and, uh, and, and the, the tail should not wag the dog in leadership in Congress. So if Congress is going to be of the people and a true reflection you know, of what's good in the nation um, and, and not a reflection of what's bad in the nation, I do think we need to decentralize power and make it more 535 uh, very diverse uh, pieces of a quilt, and 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 really preach the unity that comes about. I mean, pluribus unum is our national motto. Out of many, one. Well, uh, diversity is incredibly important, but I got to tell you, unity is scriptural. Unity is powerful. When we do get together and agree, uh, it, extraordinary things happen. Dick was there. He was in leadership. We hammered out the Balanced Budget Act of 1997. I was in Speaker Gingrich's office late in the evening with Vice President Gore from my home state hammering out a compromise that involved the Tennessee Valley Authority, and I was like a freshman. Um, you know, Actually, I was a, a sophomore. I was in my second term, and I was in the room 
hammering out these compromises. And let me tell you something. That was a compromise between Speaker Gingrich and the Republican Congress that a lot of people thought was crazy because we were on a mission. And now most of the country would love to have us back because what did we do? At the end of the day, we compromised with President Clinton so that we could move an agreement together in a bipartisan way that led to a balanced budget for three consecutive years. And in a sense, Dick, that's the, la- that's the last true big bipartisan thing that's been done in this country. And that was, what, 24 years ago? Right on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this has been a really interesting conversation, and I want to just thank both of you for joining us today. Well, it's great of you to do this, Alan, and I want to thank uh, Zach Womp profusely for doing this. He's a great American. I've always been impressed by him, but now I'm really impressed by him. He's awesome. Thank you, Zach. It's an honor. we got to pull the country together. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks again to Congressman Dick Gebhardt and Zach Womp. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to the American Democracy Lab to hear more from expert guests about issues affecting our American democracy. Thank you.